Welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. The prayer that we normally call the Lord's Prayer is really a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven. The real Lord's Prayer is found in John chapter 17. I'd like for you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. And John chapter 17 seems to be flowing along very calmly, serenely, as Jesus is praying it. And I suppose that we could read it in a very scientific manner as though nothing emotionally was really going on in Jesus' heart. But there was a tremendous conflict of emotions that was going on in the Lord's heart when he prayed, John chapter 17. As we look at verse 1, it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him and this eternal life that they may and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent i have glorified you on the earth i have finished the work which you have given me to do and now o father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which i had with you before the world was and then I'd like to look at verse 21, 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be, may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Now, it's human nature to read these words of our Lord where he's saying, praying, glorify your son. Your son also may glorify you. And it's natural to think, well, maybe Jesus wants to be like a Hollywood star here. He wants a lot of glory like he had when he was in heaven, when he had all of the attention of everybody. It's natural, I say, for us to, to read his prayer in that manner, and I suppose that it's our understanding of this word Trinity that makes us think that. You know, the word Trinity was absorbed into 
Catholicism, from paganism, and the idea of the Trinity God, the pagan, the Catholic God, is that God is in conflict with each other, that the Father's in conflict with the Son, that God is angry with sinners. He's full of wrath towards sin, sinners. And so Jesus says, calm down, Father, calm down, calm down. I will go there. I will make a vicarious sacrifice for them. I will bear their sins. You can strike me dead, and I will make a reconciliation between you and sinners because you're so hot and mad at them. That is the pagan idea of the Trinity. Ellen White never uses the word Trinity. It's the word that's not even found in the Bible. Ellen White comes the closest by referring to the heavenly trio. Three, she says they are three persons who are one in person. Are, they are three persons who are one in character. For the way that the Bible teaches the nature of the Godhead is that in ages past, as manifested in Jesus' death upon the cross, they have always been self-denying in the family of God. The humblest persons in the universe are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they have always been that way, they presently are that way, and they will ever be that way. Because Jesus has revealed that his Father is a self-sacrificing Father who would have gone to the cross himself because he gave his only begotten son for the world. And so when Jesus is praying for the Father to glorify him, and he's praying that he can glorify his Father and to reveal what their glory was like before he came to this earth, he is not talking about put the big spotlights on me and make me a star like the Hollywood stars are. He is praying, Father, reveal to the world through the cross of what our nature, of what our character is like from the very beginning. The self-sacrificing God. That is the glory of the Godhead. And so this prayer was not prayed with words that just slipped off of Jesus' tongue. It was prayed in agony. And it was prayed in suffering. And we can't understand our Lord's high priestly prayer here unless we go to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, which describes for us how Jesus prayed John 17, this prayer. It says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. John 17 was prayed with strong crying and tears. For Jesus to be able to glorify his Father, to reveal what their nature and character was in eternity past, it was the Father's will that Jesus die God-forsaken. 
that prayer was prayed with tears and supplications and a severe wrestling with his own self. The thought of dying, thought of dying, the curse of God filled the soul of Jesus with a dread infinitely more so than any criminal who faces death with an injection on death row. The latter kind of death is only asleep with the sense of God's forgiveness. That's the first death. And if you're going to die, by all means, make sure your sins are forgiven because the first death is a blessed thing. It's a sleep awaiting for the first resurrection. But the death that Jesus faced was the sum total of all the hopeless deaths that are under the curse of God. And he was in the process of being made to be sin for us who knew no sin. And in a few minutes, he would be pleading agonizingly with the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, oh, Father, please find some other way for me to save the world short of dying on the cross. And then another convulsion of tears. And perhaps this might help us make sense of his repeated request about being glorified. Help me, Father, to make the decision to bear the curse on the cross so that it might glorify you, so it can reveal who you really are. You're not the angry God. You're the one who is giving the atonement to sinners who are angry with you. That's the atonement. The death of Jesus on the cross did not change the Father's attitude one whit toward us. Because he gave it. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So Jesus is not praying in John 17 to be a show-off. No way. When he pleads with the Father to glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee, he means, please, please enable me to demonstrate love, God's loving kindness throughout the terrible trial that is facing me. Hold thou my hand. Don't let me stumble and fall. Save me from letting self mar my witness. Teach me to be patient when they beat me when they lie about me, when they mock me, when they strip me, when they exhibit me, when they nail me to the tree. Teach me to be patient. And we read that the grace of God was upon him throughout all of his life on this earth. And never did he need it and beg for it more than he needed the grace of God then as he was facing the cross. If he can endure... That will be glory, if he can endure. And that brings us to the same glory that he has given to those who believe in him. It is that same glory that will bring unity to the church. Is there any other way that we can learn to be one, even as he and the Father are one, except through identification with Christ and the cross? Any other way that unity can come to the church? Psalm 22 tells us of Christ's agony of soul as he was hanging on the cross. And it wasn't just the physical pain that was awful enough, but it was the, the soul agony of bearing the curse of God, enduring hell on our account. And 
Psalm 69 also describes his enduring hatred throughout his life and on the cross. But now there is a different element that is added. He says, when I was hungry, they gave me poison. When I was thirsty, they offered me vinegar. Now listen, this is rather strange. He says, he prays, strike them with blindness. Pour out your anger on them. May their camps be left deserted. May no one be left alive in their tents. Keep a record of all of their sins. Don't let them have any part in your salvation. May their names be erased from the book of the living. Yes, he's praying that. Now there's a problem. How can you reconcile those dreadful imprecations, or I suppose you could call them denunciations, with the prayer of Jesus on the cross where he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. Both that prayer and these imprecations are the words of Jesus, and both prayers were answered by the Father, and he forgave them then, but forgiveness is more than the blinking of the divine eye and saying, I don't care what you do. Go ahead, murder my son. It's okay. Go ahead and murder my son. It's okay with me. Father doesn't say that. God's forgiveness includes the actual removal of the sin from the heart, which is through accepting his enormous gift of repentance, his enormous gift. And some who crucified Christ did repent, praise the Lord. Apparently, you have a Roman centurion there for one who repented. But those who did not accept repentance on the day of Pentecost, some of them hardened their hearts, and they suffered every iota of those divine imprecations. The human urge, the human urge is for redress. The human urge is for justice. The human urge is not for evil. The human urge is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God is greatly concerned for justice. To crush under his feet all of the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man or woman in his cause, the Lord approveth not. The principle of justice. He's put that in every human heart. Lamentations 3, verses 34 and onward. It is right to protest injustice, for Jesus did. We're not to exact our own redress or vengeance because our own inborn love of self will cause us to act unjustly. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, we read. Leave the revenge to the Lord to work it out. Avenge not yourselves, Scripture says, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Romans 12, 19. So trust him to take care of it. He will bring the justice, but he's put that within every human heart. Trust him to take care of it. Jesus trusted his Father to take care of the justice issues that happened at the cross. 
and all too thoroughly the justice issues were taken care of. Consider the latter history of, of his murderers. They will come up in a special resurrection to see him come in the clouds of glory. Let's trust him. But let me make two statements, and you decide which of these two is a little bit closer to the truth. Justification is by faith or justification is by grace. Well, if you're perplexed, you need to note Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 again. It says, by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that is true. It's impossible that our faith could even exist were it not for grace being first. Our faith is a response to God's grace. And so we are saved by grace, but the instrument through which we receive and appreciate that grace is by faith. And when the text says that we're saved by grace, then we must mean the human race. Because God's grace is not doled out selectively according to whether people do something good to deserve it or not. His grace is given to all as freely as the circulation of the air and the atmosphere. Christ has become the second Adam. He has reversed the condemnation that the first Adam brought upon the entire human race. And so he gives that grace to all not merely an offer. His grace is to everyone alike. And many despise his grace, and they choose to rebel against it, but whenever someone believes, he's simply responding to the initiative that Christ has taken in his salvation. So now back to our question. Are we saved by grace just as we are... Are we justified by grace just as we're saved by grace? You know, justification and the forgiveness of sins are the same. And we read often in the Bible that God's forgiveness was pre has preceded our need of it. Yes. God's forgiveness of our sins precedes our need of it. For example, when wicked people crucified the Son of God, he did not wait for them to repent first. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before Peter denied him, Christ forgave him. In becoming the new head of our human race, Christ took us into himself. He took our sin into himself, and he died to pay its penalty. And the death he died was what the Bible calls the real thing, the second death. And that's the only reason why God can treat the human race as though they have never sinned. And if he were to treat us as we deserve, we would all die immediately but we're all subjects of his grace. One wise writer has said that by his sacrifice, Christ has pronounced a reprieve upon us. And that is what Paul says. Just as Adam brought upon us all the judicial verdict of condemnation, so Christ has pronounced on us a judicial verdict of acquittal. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. It's all by grace. And our faith becomes the instrument whereby we receive and appreciate this grace so that then we are justified by faith. Hold your head high. You're a child of grace. And now live as proof of it. I never thought of it before, but now it seems very obvious there in Daniel chapter 9 where the angel told the prophet 
that 70 weeks are determined or cut off upon thy people from the grand total of 2,300 years. You're familiar with that prophecy. That meant that the Lord was giving Israel another 490 annual days of atonement as their last cumulative corporate probation as a nation. 490 gracious calls to repentance from heaven to Israel. You talk about patience. 490 days of atonement annually calling the nation to repentance. Peter expressed our usual sense of impatience because with the foibles of other people, we are often impatient. But his question was to the Lord, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, up to 70 times seven. That's 490, if I understand math. So the annual day of atonement in ancient Israel was their corporate and national repentance, those 490 years in that prophecy. And as each as it came each year on the 10th day of their seventh month, it was their invitation from heaven to ponder anew their sin of national rebellion against God that must culminate at last in the cruel murder of the Son of God. Unless Israel as a nation in the meantime should repent during those 490 years. And sporadic efforts were made from time to time on the part of certain reforming kings, but never did the nation corporately grasp their divinely appointed calling. Always, ever since Mount Sinai days, the Old Covenant had just dwarfed their understanding. And now the Lord will demonstrate the extent of his forgiveness. Up to 70 times 7, solemn days of atonement, passed over while unrepentant. The call to repent from God is unheeded by Israel. And then the divinely appointed limit comes. The prophecy is fulfilled right at the day that Stephen was stoned, exactly 34 AD, 490 years after the beginning of the 2,900 years. Their day of probation was over with. And now we are living We're living in the great antitypical cosmic grand day of atonement for the world. Thank you, Peter, for helping us to understand your question. How many times should I forgive? Seven times? Shall we stone Stephen anew? A question that perplexed the disciples of Jesus perplexes us today. Peter asked, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, then the sin obviously was not an ordinary one. It was against Peter, something that had wounded Peter personally. The apostle was mature enough spiritually to realize that seven, that's a good number. If I do it seven times, that would be perfect, wouldn't it? It must be the limit of this difficult task for someone who has offended me. The sin against him was so hurtful that Peter felt that it threatened him and his personhood. And already he was beginning to sense dimly 
that Jesus was a forgiver. There were little inklings of what led him later to pray for his murderers. Father, forgive them. Jesus was a forgiver. Peter understood that it was his own duty to forgive. But it was a difficult thing to do. Nurturing resentment, oh, that was so much sweeter to indulge in. So much sweeter. But when Jesus enlarged the limit to 70 times 7, he told about the enormously guilty yet forgiven thief who couldn't forgive his debtor his trifling little bit of money. And he ended the little session with the blunt warning that his heavenly Father will not forgive us our trespasses if we do not forgive from our heart, our brother, his trespasses. Obviously, those we feel are so against us. Once there was a young man who proclaimed to have one of the most beautiful, flawless of hearts. But an old man challenged him about that. The crowd looked at the old man's heart. It was beating strongly, full of, but it was full of scars. Some pieces of the old man's heart had been removed and others had been put in, but they didn't fit quite right. The old man looked at the young man. I would never trade my heart for yours. Every scar represents a person I've given my love. I tear out a piece and I give it to them. And sometimes they give me a piece of their broken heart, which I fit along jagged edges. When the person doesn't return my love, a painful gouge is left. These gouges stay open, reminding me that I love these people too. Perhaps someday they will return and fill that space. Think about Jesus and his heart of love for you. Dear Father in heaven, we go now to wash one another's feet. May we truly experience the cleansing that you have to give us through your forgiveness of sins, its removal and the replacement of much more abounding grace. In the Savior's name, amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.